So Nishant, you know, I don't know which started first, but I do know that they form an interminable loop in my head. Travel leads to history. History leads to travel for me and it keeps going. I have this urge to know intimate stories about a place when I'm there. And the, the other way around, when I read these intimate stories, I want to be there, right? Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Let's play a little game. Close your eyes. Unless you're driving, in which case, you know, don't. Imagine yourself as a freelance artist with a growing base of subscribers. Imagine going on an exotic adventure to paint all the beautiful things you see. To put them together and to serialize your work for an eager-paying audience back home. Imagine becoming wealthy and successful, and your work existing across all kinds of media. Imagine impacting the world long after you are gone. Now, open your eyes and tell me what year it is. Today's story is not set in the creator economy of 2022. It is not set in 2010 or 1990 or even the 80s. Imagine this takes place in 1839. This is the true story that has inspired my guest of this episode, Sunil Shinde, to travel through the Holy Land, retracing the footsteps of British adventurer and artist David Roberts. This story and Sunil's journey have become a fantastic book. And that is the book that led to this conversation and today's episode that I am so delighted to share with you. The book, From Cairo to Beirut, is a wonderful journey with Sunil. His writing packs an impressive knowledge of geopolitics and art history, and through it all runs his pure joy as an artist and traveller. Whether your interest lies in sketching, history, travel, or the Middle East, or If, like Sunil, you sit right at the intersection of all of the above, this is a book that I can promise you will love. Because of the breadth and depth of this conversation, I'm breaking today's episode into a few distinct chapters. If you want to dive into any one of them specifically, tap the timestamps in the episode description. But if you love the idea of slow travel, which is kind of the point of this episode, maybe take this whole episode as one long, beautiful journey that you take with the two of us. I promise you will learn many things. Actually, it is interesting to look at this episode as one long journey, but really, I think it might even be three journeys. The first journey is Sunil's, and we begin at the origin of his curiosities. How growing up in India gave him an interest in history, how leaving India led to an interest in travel, and how he began in various ways to document both of these great passions of his life. The second journey is that of the artist David Roberts, who in 1839 went on a months-long trip through the biblical Holy Land, possibly the first documented instance since the Crusades of a white man travelling through these places. His paintings would have an incredible impact on how this part of the world was seen, not only in the immediate years afterwards, but decades and even nearly two centuries later. 
Are there any sketch tips from 1839 that we can use in our practice today? Sunil tells me fascinating stories about David Roberts' travels and the ways in which things are still so similar in spite of the enormous differences. The third journey begins after Sunil returns home from his trip. Thus begins the process of putting his words and images together in the form of a book to find an agent and publisher and the process of finally putting out a book combining these passions of history and travel and art. I know you will love this episode and I am excited to share it with you. Let's begin. Hello Sunil and thank you so much for joining me on the Sneaky Art Podcast. I am absolutely delighted to speak with you and I look forward to getting into this wonderful book that you have shared with me. Nishan, thank you so much for having me. The The delight is shared and privilege is mine and looking forward to the conversation. Uh, so Sunil, one of the great uh, privileges of having your own podcast is that you get to take it in the direction that you want to take it. And uh, how I exercise this privilege is that I think about the kind of urban sketches that, uh, that fascinate me. The most interesting urban sketches in my experience are the people who aren't urban sketchers in order to be urban sketchers. So people who are not already vested either from childhood or and or professionally in the business of expressing themselves visually. But people who have other jobs, other creative inclinations, but they have found something in urban sketching that they find worthy of their precious leisure time. So your work with urban sketching and the way that it relates with your life, the way that it intersects with these other interests in your life, that history and traveling, is absolutely fascinating to me. So before we get into urban sketching at all, I want to explore this intersection of history and travel. So could you tell me a little bit about your early interests in both of these subjects and how they came to intersect as you, as you grew up? So Nishant, you know, I don't know which started first. Uh, but I do know that they form an interminable loop in my head. Travel leads to history, history leads to travel for me, and it keeps going. I have this urge to know intimate stories about a place when I'm there. And the, the other way around, when I read these intimate stories, I want to be there, right? So one leads to the other on a continuous basis. Now, there are so many times where I have, you know, I'm, I'm at this spot and, you know, I'm with other people, you know, sometimes there are other travelers, sometimes, you know, I'm traveling with my wife, my daughters, right? And I'm having this moment where, you know, I'm with myself and nobody exists at that point in time. It's me and that story that I've read, you know, some obscure story somewhere, right? And, you know, and I'm, I'm reliving that moment. And, you know, that's what I live for in, in many senses, right? You know, I was in Alhambra back in 2010. Um, uh, and in the Alhambra, there is this room um, where the the king and the queen uh, were petitioned by Columbus for making the voyage to to America right so so, so to speak right so that so that that entire incident had, had was playing through my mind when I was in that crowded room at that point in time right and there were probably mm -hmm. 50 other people in that room um you know I knew the exact story behind uh you know how Columbus had been trying to get the attention from the, you know, Ferdinand and, you know, Queen Isabella. And, you know, how, you know, Queen Isabella at some point had almost 
rejected that journey and, you know, the king then, you know, pushed for it and made it happen. Right? And in many senses, you know, today it's a palace, you know, it is, you know, hundreds of years old and, you know, it's all stones. But if you rewind back to that exact moment, that place was like NASA. That is where you are looking at a new world. Today, you know, you can start, you know, you can you can be in Florida and Hubble Space Telescope and look at Mars, a place where nobody has ever been to. That is what it was, right? And that correlation was playing in my mind and I had goosebumps and I had no idea what was happening around me, right? So so for me, for me, that is what history and travel does, right? Is I sometimes want to be in that exact spot and, you know, I want to... There, there are so many times when you when you are in that place... And you and then you see how small and big things are, right? Uh, you know some of the, you know I write about this in my book, uh, the Battle of Tyre, right? One of Alexander's biggest and well-known battles where he literally built this bridge to an island so that he could capture it. It's only when you stand in that bay. You realize it's not a very large bay. It's it's, it's kind of tiny, right? You know, in, in our heads, we have made this into a mega epic, right? And so it's you know, it's only when you're there that that you realize the scale of things, and you know that that yeah. that gets me going. Yeah, and there's also all these competing images, right? Like these bigger, grander images. They often come to us from Hollywood, from movies. And our sense of what should an epic army and a world conqueror look like? How should how should the scale of things be? And what I'm taking away from what you're saying is also this sense of, I don't know if this is the right word, but I think of it as the historicity of a, a place, an object. We grew up studying a lot of history and we grew up reading a lot of Indian subcontinental history. A lot of the reading was quite tedious, even though I was, I loved history because I loved stories. I didn't find those stories in those history books, except I found references to those stories that in so-and-so year, Shivaji conquered so-and-so thing. And then it was left to my imagination to add color to that story of how he might have gone around, gone about conquering that place. And my love for it grew. But I'm curious to know for you, how did it go down? Like, how did you start to see history when you were growing up? And then how do you start to see history as an adult? Like, how does one become a reader of history and um, like how uh, the, uh, trace this trace how this love grows from an early age so Nishant for me history started the way history starts for most Indian students right knowing how many marks you can score in the subject at any point in time right you know you can you know you always know you have a sense right you know in English you can lose five marks you know in, in history you can lose two marks and that is what history was to me other than the fact that the history textbook was a great place to start doodling, right? And my my Rani Jasi Kirani had mustache, and you know, like like every other kid, right? Probably that's where my history and sketching started, right? Uh, this is like serendipity happening right now, um, uh, you know. But for me, I think the the love for history started when I was removed from history, in a sense. Uh, I moved to US in two thousand one. Um, right. And then in 2005 is where I really started traveling for the first time. Right. And in between, you start making these trips back to India and then, you know, you're missing the India that you have seen. And you now, in a sense, have removed yourself from the hustle and bustle, right? The day-to-day -day problems of India, right? If you can call it that. Uh, and then you start to see India as a place 
uh, with a context around it. And that's what I think happened to me, right? Like, for example, I've lived in Mumbai for, or in Maharashtra for, you know, all my life. But I'd never been to Sihagad, right? Until I came to the US, right? I visited Lal Mahal in Pune where Shivaji has fabulous stories only after I came here. So I started going back to India as if it is a vacation destination. And then you start to read about it. And when you start to read about it, for me, it's, I'm not a foodie, right? So I don't, you know, you know, I'm not, and you know, I'm not, in, in most cases, I'm not a beach guy. Right? So I, you know, ended up reading, looking for stories about a place and, you know, histories where you eventually land. Uh, and, yeah. and, and and you're right, like, you know, it, sometimes for us, we get entangled in uh, dates and, you know, locations and, you know, cause and effect. I don't know if you remember, that used to be a, a question that was worth 20 marks in history, right? <laughs> if this is the cause, what was the effect? Uh, but with the moment you start to read about it as a story and as you treat historical figures as people, right? It just mm -hmm. blows your mind. Yeah, yeah. So coming to our subject of choice, the great explorer and sketcher and artist David Roberts, tell me a little bit about how you came across his work and how did you come to find something in him that you wanted to perhaps emulate or you want, like the idea of wanting to retrace someone's steps is such a complex idea. So there are obviously, you know, three, four, five angles that are running in my head uh, as, I, as I think of the question you have asked but to start at the beginning uh, the idea to retrace his path happened in Petra when I was visiting with my daughter right uh, she was 12 when we used to do these father-daughter trips there was this point where I was sitting and sketching in front of the Kazne which is the, the rock cut temple if you may it's not a temple but you know, the, the rock cut monument and there is uh, this Bedouin who's sitting next to me and you're sitting patiently for a long time and at the point he just peeps over and says, you know, hey, by the way, do you know you're sketching what I'm selling? And, you know, this is their way to attract my attention and I look at it and he's, he has a, this David Roberts and, you know, I'm, I'm literally sketching that exact same angle because I had right. David Roberts at the back of my mind but not as, a, as anything else. Uh, as is my habit, before I go to a place, I look at the sketches that have been done there. And it just so happened that it was David Roberts. But then the penny dropped uh, because I connected the fact that when I was in Egypt, I had encountered him. And I was in Israel, I had encountered him. And there, were, there was this entire, so to speak, path uh, that David Roberts seemed to be there. And I think, I think that's where the idea, the, the, the germination of that idea happened. Uh, and then I went back and read a little bit about him and uh, pretty soon realized that he was one of the earliest known artists to travel to Egypt with the sole purpose of sketching through observation, direct observation. He wanted to be in the spot and sketch on the spot and then take it back, right? Which to me, very, very close to the Urban Sketching Manifesto. And you know, I was a you know I was an early urban sketcher at that point in time, right? So it, I think that the the twain clicked very quickly. Uh, and then as I kept reading, uh, realized that his journey was one of the first journeys by an amateur 
And so these things came together, you know, sketchbook, you know, wanting to be from place A to place B, wanting to make that journey for the sake of sketching and nothing else. Right. Uh, now, already at this point, sketching has become part of your traveling. So tell me a little about about this aspect. How did you, uh, if is there, was there a conscious moment in which you discovered urban sketching that you can recall? And how did it come to become part of your traveling? So, Nishan, there was. There was, uh, for me, like I said, you know, history and travel, right, was, you know, is the, is the, is the, is the starting block for what I like to do. Now, like all uh, techie workers, right, or workers in America in general, you get two weeks of vacation and that's all you have. So, the way for me to elongate, right, or prolong my vacation was I would plan, you know, I would take two months to plan, right? So I was already starting to travel, uh, right, when that happened. And then when I came back, I would take another two uh, months to, you know, write down, journal, blog, and so on, right? So documentation became a big part of my traveling. Uh, photography very quickly followed, right? You know, camera and and then, and then photography became a thing, right? And, uh, you know, I used to travel with, two SLRs and I would have a tripod and I would have three lenses. And, you know, very soon I started to realize that photography, as much as it gave me a lot, started to come in between what me and what I was wanting to see. It became the reason to travel. And I was looking at the screen more than I was looking at the scene in front of me. Right? There was a point at which I just decided that I did not need this thing in between. I wanted to lighten my travel, right? I did not want electronics. It was part of this entire thing that I was trying to do. But I still wanted to document, right? And then I think I had seen Lee's deal. Uh, I'd seen some of her sketches, uh, Stephanie Bauer, like, you know, Suhita. And then I felt that sketchbook was a more meaningful way to document what I was trying to do, right? So it was a very conscious effort to put down a camera and pick up a sketchbook and start sketching. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about this decision a little more because this is a fascinating decision because, I mean, if a camera has been in your life for a few years, you have also acquired a certain level of skill, comfort with this medium. You have been able to get some good shots, so you have certain confidence in taking shots of a certain kind. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of dopamine and a lot of achievement that comes from doing something, uh, being good at uh, with something. So to switch from that to another medium of documentation is is a stark switch. What was the place of drawing or any kind of art making in your life at that point? Almost none. Uh, you know, I had sketched as a kid, you know, drawing beards on kings and queens in history books. <laughs> Uh, I had done engineering drawing as part of my engineering, right? You know, vanishing points and such, but no art per se. Uh, it was, you know, I was just looking at photography was a thing and I wanted something to replace photography, right? You know, it was a very clinical decision, if you may, right? Like, you know, I'm an engineer at heart, uh, right? You look at all your options and you pick the one that's more optimal, right? And that's how I took it. I think I was also, um, it's also part of, by then, by the 2014 time frame, right? You know, SLRs had become mainstream and, you know, everybody with a iPhone had a first name 
comma last name at photography.com, right? Like, you know, as they're, right, you know, everybody, everybody was being a photographer. So there was no point being in that crowded marketplace, right? I wanted to obviously do something which was mine, right? You know, every photograph like, looks kind of sort of the same, right? Once you stand in a place at a certain point in time, a sketch does not. Uh, no matter what, right? You know, you know, I've been part of sketch crawls where four people sit shoulder to shoulder and come with such, you know, enormously different, beautiful sketches. Um, so, so, so that was, you know, so some of these things uh, were part of my decision to to switch. Yeah, and was was writing also always a part of this uh, post trip documentation, as you talked about, you know, preparing two months for a trip just so you could also uh, sort of imbibe some uh, some of the joy of being on vacation and then reflecting on the trip after you've come back because your book is full of great art and of course also the art of David Roberts but what I found best about it is your writing I think your writing is so good and your tra especially as a travel writer you really made me feel like I was there and I was part of so many of your thought processes uh, when you're sitting in the night in Petra and it gets colder and you're trying to get into the library in the St. Catherine Monastery, I was there with that uh, struggle in your mind. So uh, tell me a little bit about documentation and uh, what it means to document through words, what it means to document through pictures, and then what did it mean to when you started to document through drawings? Nishan, that's such a fantastic question. Um, um, because... For me, documentation has been a, a very conscious effort. There are so many times I have, you know, even right at the beginning, I have come back with scraps of documents, right? You know, I've written a line here, a line there. And then I would sit down to blog it, you know, early 2008, 2009. Um, and then I would, you know, there's a day that I'm trying to write about Right? And then I would realize that there are so many details that I can now, what, what was very apparent to me is now obscure, right? Like I, like I have no, you know, I have no memory. How did I get there? What, did I catch a cab? Did I, right? Just, just little things. And, you know, it's not that you want to write it down, but then you want to be, you want the ability to edit. You want the material to be there and you want to take it out, right? And so I started realizing that, uh, that you have to document as quickly as you can, right? While it is still fresh in your head, right? And you know, it's in you know, a lot of times uh, early on, you you start to think of your writing as these full sentences, well formed thought, right? That needs to appear in journals, right? Especially because you know, I by then was already reading journals of travelers, and you know, you would read their journal and you'd be like, wow, this this is a book. The the moment it was written. Whereas that's not how I write, right? You know, it takes me sometimes 13 tries to get a sentence right. For me, I have to first say, you know, hey, this is my raw thought. Then this is my raw English thought. Then this is, right? Then this is the raw grammatically correct thought. Then this is, right? And I have to go through that. And, you know, that that's part of the beautiful struggle of writing. But then the need to keep a notebook on you and write just little things that you keep seeing all along, right? You know, the fact that it is cold, or right, or the fact that I can sm smell, you know, gasoline, right, in that car, are these little sensory things that uh, I learned uh, to capture uh, over over a period of time. 
and that really helps later down the line when you, you when you need a little filler between two thoughts, right? Two important thoughts. You just need a breather, right? Some of these <laughs> go a wrong way. Yeah, uh, and it of like just like with sketching, I feel like having that one little line there. It also traps so much of the other thoughts, like it holds them. And when you read that line, it suddenly opens the door to those other things which come flooding back. So the uh, memory of gasoline uh, smell in a in a cab or in a taxi somewhere will bring to mind immediately the dust and the speed and the road and the the other the other unspoken emotions around it. Uh, so now now you are you are starting to write. You're starting to journal on location as well. Uh, what does what is the need for the drawing? Where do the what does the drawing give that the words cannot? Because you're you're quite well versed with your words, even if they're taking you thirteen attempts to get right. Two ends of a spectrum, right? I think of a word as a very, uh, it's a point of view at a point of view, right? You know, in many senses, the word captures what I'm thinking, not what I'm seeing, right? Yeah, it is almost it's a reflection of what I'm seeing, right? You know, it's an interpretation already, right? Just you know, by the time I have seen it and I see it in Marathi and then I translate it into English and into, I pick out of the three words that I know that best describe this, right? And I think sketching is much more raw, right? You know, it is it is a line. I see a line, I draw a line, right? There is, you know, at that point in time, very little thought has gone in between, right? And for me, I think uh, it is so important. The other thing that I feel uh, when when I sketch is, sketching is like a, time-lapse, right? A, a photograph is, a is a, again, like, you know, it's a point, it's a three millisecond, three millisecond is a huge exposure, right? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a fraction of a second and, you know, you have captured whatever it is there to capture and that's it. Whereas when you sit and sketch, right, you know, my sketches on an average is about an hour, right? Uh, nothing definitely longer than that. Uh, I just don't have the patience, right? But in an hour, you are now capturing right at event starting and then you're seeing it unfold and then ending right you know sometimes you see a fruit seller starting to unpack and by the time you're sketched right you know he's sold his first you know eight fruits right and you, and, and so and so this is you're trying to capture this and sometimes in my sketch i can see that you know this one actor is playing three roles already right uh, so, so i think i think that experience you I think sketching forces you to sit in that one place and to experience what otherwise would have been just a second. And I think those are just two completely different documentation uh, styles or right. mediums. Yeah, th that's so well put. Like, I also think of myself as a writer first. Like, I have always been drawing the way children are always drawing. But uh, ever since I had a handle on my creative impulses, the thing I wanted to be was a writer. So even today, when I make a lot of, now I make a lot more art, I feel, than I write. But I still think that the process of drawing for me begins with the process of articulating in words what I look at. So in a sense, if I'm sitting at a spot and I'm looking, you know, if I'm in a cafe and I'm looking across the cafe at the people there, I have to put into words in my mind what I'm going to draw. And then that gives purpose to that drawing and then the drawing comes out and it of course it says it quote unquote says it in so many other ways what I'm trying to draw and what I saw and what I made sense of so 
I, I completely, I, I, I love, I love what you said about this contrast between writing and drawing because yes, writing and drawing is also an, an immediate filter. You are of course reacting to so many things, especially when drawing on location, we are reacting to so many things. But there is a sense of what I feel uh, is maybe a product of our times that words carry a bit of, uh, well, people are shielding themselves against words a little more. And people have their defenses up against photographs for sure. So we have this combative attitude towards words and pictures. And it also reflects our combative attitude towards what we call mainstream media or uh, this wing media which doesn't uh, adhere to the truth. But a drawing, it lowers our defenses in a different way. We don't have those defenses up and we are more willing to engage with a drawing as somebody's perspective and not necessarily this objective truth that is being uh, shoved at me, shoved down my throat and I'm being forced to either accept it or declare that it is wrong or it is false or it is fake news. That's Going amazing. To... That, that's amazing. <laughs> if, I, if I can add just one more, one more. Please. Uh, because you just triggered something which uh, was always... I feel like it was inside me, but you triggered it. Is if you think of a sketch, right? A sketch that is done on location just has an energy in it with inherent energy, right? And you know, you you try to replicate that sketch in studio, you cannot, you know, it sometimes your studio sketch is better in terms of composition and your lines, but that energy is lost, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when you're sketching, you want to show that energy, right? The same actually applies with words, right? Your your immediate first thought, if you were to blurt it out, have just so much realism and, you know, uh, raw, the rawness. But you never want that to happen. You actually want to process and post-process and post-post-process because, you know, there is a certain longevity you attach to words, right? There is a permanency, right? You know, the moment you write this thing for the next 1,000 years, you can't change it, right? It's going to be printed, there are 10,000 copies and that's it, right? You're, you're, you're going to be held down uh, to that thought for the next, right? And that creates a certain amount of weight, uh, which is unnecessary, I think. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that is it. Yeah, yeah. And again, this speaks to the overwhelming importance of journals and personal sketchbooks in which your words are just for you, in which you can feel good about even expressing yourself in a raw way or scratching out things that you thought you believed and just just your space where your words are yours. And again, with words, there is this tendency now that we feel that everything must be shared and we are that, uh, we are that uh, people of the human race for whom nothing is private anymore. Everything in different ways uh, is being shared and in the back of our minds, at least even if we don't choose to share it, is the idea that we could share it and that we should ideally be sharing it and like there's the, so much of so much of other people's ideas and expectations have infiltrated very deeply into our minds like even when you are alone in front of a 5000 year old monument in the sands of Egypt you might think about who can i show this photo to <laughs> and how should i show it you know and it is and it is so true nishan there is a uh, incidents I write in the book uh, where, uh, you know, I'm at this mosque and I've, you know, made this sketch 
and my my guide is sitting uh, next to me right and you know and and he knows the purpose of my travel right he knows about he's he's himself a david roberts fan and he knows that i'm retracing his his journey right and so um there is this david roberts uh, composition that i am now consciously copying right and uh, you know i've and there is a there is a second story about this incident that i will tell you at a later point in time uh, but you know i i've essentially now sketched kind of from where david roberts had sat right and i and i show it to him and he looks at my sketch and says uh, are you going to add the details later right you know and you know it was a very mild way of saying you know mm-hmm. hey uh, do you think you are done because this is right this is just and you know and it took me it took me a while to understand you know was being said at that point in time right and it gave and and it gave a little more history or context to 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 that right david roberts composition is a photograph of of that place right you know it has minute details that you can see even now there are there is a crack in his uh, you know if you look at his composition you know there's a crack in the wall of a mosque and i can see that crack you know 200 years, almost 200 years later it is that accurate and you know his photo you know, his his sketch his lithograph is a photograph and it had to be because there was no cameras at that point in time right we are talking about 1839 this is the first time that the western world is inside that mosque right it is like the the mars rover in a sense right and it has almost this obligation to be immaculate perfect right for me it is not you know for me you know i was just sketching the three things that are catching my eyes and you know i was getting the frame about the same but you know i look at you know i look at john and you know john was my guide and you know i can totally understand why he thinks this is not a robert David Roberts sketch right and you know I'm like you know hey I'm not here to copy right I'm here to stand where right. he stands yeah yeah let's let's get into that there are many aspects of this what you just said that are uh, things we will touch upon later in this conversation like I want to talk about art versus photography I also want to talk about how uh, is it, it, it it's how I feel it is essentially liberating it liberated artists to not need to depict the world exactly uh, also the i but what i want to touch upon now is really the idea of not copying david roberts but retracing their footsteps so you mentioned that you had already been reading about other travelers and you had been reading travelers accounts so tell me about this, this when you discovered david roberts and you found the serendipity of your travels with his what was this motivation to retrace the footsteps what was uh, which part of it was retracing and which part of it was not copying like the the aspect of it it was distinct to you and had value in your life again nishan that is such a fantastic question um so let me reflect on that for a second um so first and foremost david roberts itinerary right his journey his path is in the is in the part of the world that's very dear to my heart right that north africa middle east uh, you know there is some connection right you know i i keep wanting to go back to the place um so you know wanting to make that journey for me was almost a no brainer right you know the moment i saw his path i'm like you know hey i need to do that because all of those are on my you know 
punch list somewhere, right? And I want to be there. Um, second, when I when I look at uh, by then I had already been to a few places that he had been to and I had seen his sketches. And, and you know, in many of these places, they actually sell David Roberts' art even right two hundred years later. And you know, and and you can see that you know, hey, what you can see in front of you is already there, right? David Roberts has this way of uh, staging a scene uh, that even in situ, right, he could create a composition where he says, you know, hey, here is this massive monument and I want to show you that monument, right? And by the way, in the background, there is this other thing, right? So, you know, I'm trying to, you know, it's a little bit of a map, you know, geographically, I'm locating you there. And, you know, I'm adding this foreground element of these, you know, wonderfully dressed, colorful, you know, people in colorful garbs, right? And and he and he creates that, you know, it, it's almost like, you know, it's, it's a composition that captures that place, you know, in a moment, right? Uh, so in, in, in many ways, he made me want to go to some of the places, right? Which is what a travel writer or travel sketcher's dream is. Is to make, you know, your your readers want to go to the same place and experience the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so for me, uh, the fact that he had a path meant one variable was taken out of the equation. Right then, I didn't have to think of what my itinerary should be, where I go, where I don't. Right, he had already picked that. You know, there was there was a certain uh, almost a pilgrimage at attribute to the path that he was taking and uh, you know which was attractive to me even as I started the creative brief to myself was to stand where he stood and sketch what he sketched right and then almost as an afterthought I added parenthetically and missed right so I wanted to sketch what he sketched and you know because there are many times uh, he has this view and then there is another view, just you know, ninety degrees. That that is not in his book. And you know, obviously, he had limitations. I didn't. You know, there was no. You know, I could, I could, I could print as much as I wanted, at least electronically. If I never, I had never thought of what I was doing as a book at that point in time, right? I just thought, you know, hey, these are some sketches. I'm gonna put them right, right next to each other, and you know, it would be on my blog or you know, Facebook, something irreverent in that sense, right? Um. Uh, and so and so and so for me it was about standing where he stood was a was a big deal. It was my way of trying to experience what he had experienced, and I think that's where you know I'll go back to that uh, incidence that I write very early on in the book, uh, where David Roberts, you know, this is eighteen thirty, you know, eighteen thirty eight December, eighteen thirty nine January, right? You know, for two months he's stuck in Cairo. Because he wants to go to Jerusalem, but you know Jerusalem has the plague, right? So he's not able to go there. Uh, and you know, by the way, while while I was writing this, you know, you know, COVID was happening, so it was it, it's amazing that those stories uh, coincided. Um, and so while he's stuck there, he talks to the um, uh, to to the local officials for him to get a visa to see uh, to see Cairo, and he's the first western traveler to be allowed inside any of the 400 mosques right so if you think of you know crusades you know 
since the Crusades all the way to the 1830s, right? For 700, 800 years, Western, uh, nobody from the Western world has really been inside this place, right? And he's allowed. And even as he's allowed, right, he's asked to be, you know, you know, hey, be careful. You can just, you know, saunter in, right? You have to try and meld in and try to not look like you're this guy from outside, but be in there and, you know, do what you want to do. Uh, and he's given a bodyguard, right? And so, you know, and so there is this sketch of his that is done on a particular day. And on that day, you know, he's sitting in this mosque and he's painted this, right? And so I wanted to go to the same mosque. And when I went into the mosque and then you, you know, give your shoes at the entrance and then you walk in and, you know, there's these kids uh, chanting, you know, verses of Quran. And then I go to this courtyard and then you, you know, at that courtyard, it's, I immediately knew I was in David Roberts' sketch, right? And so now I'm trying to locate myself, right? So I have his sketch, which is printed in front of me and you know, it's, it's open. And now I'm starting to line up what he has sketched, right? So like, oh, this window is to my right. So he must be on the left. And then I line myself up. And when all the lines come together, right? I'm standing at this spot. I'm like, you know, hey, this is where he must have been, right? And I, and I see that, you know, two feet behind me is this little nook, <laughs> right? Is this little nook. And, you know, I, I touched down in that look, look and I realized this is where he, this is exactly where he sat. There was no other, right. no other place, right? And I realized that he sat where he sat, not because it had the best composition necessarily. There are other better compositions in that courtyard. But I realized that this is a place where he was, you know, he was hiding from the mosque, right? He was, he, he was in a corner. Nobody could see his sketchbook. Nobody could peer in. He was literally trying to make himself invisible. At goosebumps then, I have goosebumps now, right? As I mm -hmm. think about, I felt for a for a half a second, right? I'm in the head, you know, I'm in David Roberts' head, right? Yeah. So to speak, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, and see, something that every urban sketcher can also relate with very much. Even now, right? You know, we try to find yeah. a place where, you know, you have your back against something and your supplies are safe and you don't have to worry about, <laughs> right? Uh, things and so that exact same thing uh, and, and so so this is an experience that I can only have when I'm sitting exactly where he sat and, and I've had many of those right and I know why he sketched this and not that right why his sketch cuts off at a certain point uh, and so on right yeah so so interesting tell me a little bit about uh, you know uh, to go somewhere now as an urban sketcher to go somewhere now even as a traveler we can do months of research, we can Google, we can find out answers to all our queries, we can hear the accounts of other travelers and there are so many resources at hand. So uh, paint me a picture of what it must be like for someone like David Roberts. Now, with the disconnect that you pointed out, also no West, no person from the Western world may have stepped inside these places, may have seen these places or spent this kind of time in these places. So uh, give me a sense of the scale of the challenge in front of him, what did he set out to do and what did it mean to prepare for that? So, uh, so let's situate David Roberts historically, right? So this is, David Roberts was in Egypt in 1839, right? That's literally 40 years after Napoleon, uh, 1799 is where Napoleon, you know, came to US, not US, he came to Egypt, 
that's where the Rosetta Stone was found, right, etc., etc., right? So that is the first time since the Crusades that a, a person from the West is walking the streets without hiding, right? I mean, there have been people who have been there, but they've always been uh, trying to not show that they have the white skin. They were called Franks back back in the time, right? They're not they're not Franks, right? They have to hide themselves. Um, in in the in the time between Napoleon and David Roberts, right? There have been uh, you know, Egypt is now used to seeing the Western world, right? But there are limitations. You can do this, but not that. Uh, well, David Roberts uh, landed in Egypt. This was a point at which uh, no art, no, no artist had really sketched or captured Egypt. Right? That, that was his creative brief to himself, uh, and he was doing that because until that point in time, the Western world had never really seen the biblical land, so to speak. Right. They've only, only read about it. They've never seen it. And there is this now landscape artist who has decided to walk the path that uh, was described in, in, in the Bible uh, and to actually sketch it. Right? So that's, that's, the, that's the creative brief he has given himself. Now, when he was doing that, uh, first and foremost, you know, this is the, the land is still largely unsafe to travel by yourself, right? You had to travel as part of, you know, a caravan. You needed uh, people who knew how to speak the language. Uh, you know, there were, you know, there were tribes, you know, tribes of Bedouins who were not friendly with each other. Uh, the, there was war in the air, right? Uh, the uh, uh, the Pasha, the local Pasha was uh, conscripting people, drafting people for his war against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there was plague in Jerusalem, right? So it was, you know, if you if you think of all of those things, right? These are very very challenging times. Uh, there isn't really a well defined way to travel from place A to place B, right? If you look at David Roberts' journals, right, everywhere you realize that he had the path in his mind, but you know he had to figure out when he reached a certain place, he had to figure out the logistics for the next place, uh, mm -hmm. which you know, you know, again, you know, in those days with. Uh, very little to go uh, with uh, is is extremely complex, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really uh, that the, the idea of not having your questions answered before you set off is such a big proposition, and it seems almost impossible to think today. Like we are actually we have been in the world of post Google Maps for only 15 years. But even the idea of going somewhere without Google Maps is sometimes it feels like as if you are being a great adventurer of the world if you're traveling and you're just looking at your surroundings. And this actually, it, it brings me to like this notion of something that I have felt often and I, I, I see that sense in your book also of the importance of slow travel and how once we know the path, once we know this, log all these logistical questions are answered, we end up simply going from A to B with the idea that we will reach B, but the going is irrelevant. I had this thought when I was, um, I was on a plane and I, I think one of the first times when I had just moved to Europe and I was flying back home 
and I was looking out the window and I thought I am crossing over these mountains and these lands and these deserts and these plains and these oceans and seas. But I have no sense of doing this because I could be just asleep right now if I wanted. I could watch a movie if I wanted. I could be drinking orange juice in this air-conditioned atmosphere. But I am actually traveling over thousands and thousands of kilometers without a sense of the time, without a sense of the geography, without a sense of what it means to travel thousands and thousands of kilometers. So uh, when, when I'm reading about your account of uh, traveling through the Middle East and in this journey of retracing the footsteps, it does feel, for good or for bad, it does feel like you still had some trouble figuring out logistics for some places. And some part of that experience was also like it felt like it's a very distinctly uh, like a brown experience of the Middle East is very different from a white person's experience of the Middle East. So as you started walking and you not well walking, well, retracing these footsteps, when you started going along this path that David Roberts followed, um, I notice in the book as well that slowly you start to learn more about him. You start to learn more about his uh, his view of what he was seeing. And you are able to contrast that with your own. So uh, tell me if you have thoughts about this. Like what uh, what was distinct, like uh, what is it that you could not maybe have gotten simply from reading his account, even as a fan of history, and that you got instead from trying to follow those steps yourself? So I think, uh, you know, the, the first uh, answer that comes to my mind, Nishant, is that it is so much simpler than it seems, right? And, you know, it's the contrast of what people think usually, right? That, you know, sometimes we overwhelm ourselves with, you know, hey, you know, that place, you know, how do I get there? And, you know, how, you know, how, how do things happen, right? You know, especially for somebody like me who likes to be overprepared about everything, right? Is once you land up in that spot uh, and, and you when you leave enough room for that impromptu to happen, there are people around you who are, who actually are trying to help you in many many ways, right? And you have, mm -hmm. and you have to give them that space, right? That it is so much more simpler than it actually seems uh, from the outside. Um, uh, you know, my brown screen, my brown skin melts into the surroundings in the Middle East, and I don't know if that's that's one of the charms for me for being. Uh, in the Middle East, right? That 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 I am part of the scenery, right? I am not the scenery, right? There are so many times I feel like the locals turn up to watch the tourists, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and here, you know, I can feel like you know I'm, you know, I can I can stand in the middle of a street and sketch, and people don't look at me as if I am a tourist, right? You know, I in fact very distinctly uh, uh, remember people as they passed me when I was sketching in Cairo and asked me, you know, questions in Arabic because, you know, I, you know, do tend, I can, <laughs> I can pass uh, as an Arabic yeah. for a little bit. And they're looking at me and saying, you know, hey, why are you doing this? You should be earning your livelihood right now. I don't know why, I don't know what you're doing, right? That can't be uh, earning your falafel for you uh, in a way, right? <laughs> and which, you know, is an experience that David went through uh, in his own way as a white guy, right, uh, to be pushed and shoved in the streets of Cairo uh, and, you know, it not being easy. Um, 
for for david i think for david roberts it was also the fact that he didn't make it easy for himself yeah for the for the wonderful artist that he is and for the wonderful what the gift that he's given to the uh, to the art and the travel world exploration world uh you never see him really trying to assimilate uh you know in in that culture right he never tries to pick up arabic right you know he you see david's um portrait uh, at the back of his book but you can you can see that he's you know it's a costume he's wearing right you know and he's wearing the arabic right and but it, it almost feels like it's a costume right uh, after he came back from uh, his uh, jaunt in the middle east if you can call it that he never went back he never you know talked about it right it was a one and a done thing for him right you know it was a it was a business venture in many ways right a way to get a portfolio back right uh, and and which is what you know which is what he did like you know colonists do you know raided the place picked what he wanted to pick and then and then went away right uh i think uh, you know i i i have a different relationship to that place right you know it is a place that i keep going back to and i will keep going back to and i keep sending people there and i keep sending people there to say you know hey look how beautiful that place is how safe that place is you know i was um you know when i was there uh you know trump was the president and uh the announcement to move jerusalem uh, to move the the american embassy to jerusalem happened that the morning that i was in khan el khalili right which is the the main souk in in cairo and you know i had seen the news in the day and i'm you know and i'm worried you know what this is going to do and you know you always think of you know in the western world you know how what trump says has an impact uh, on the rest of the world and it can bring everything to a brink of war quickly right but but you, you know once you're in in that souk and you realize people are living their life they have no idea who this president of the united states is and what he's saying today and they don't care they you know have this wonderful um uh, memory of um sitting in a coffee shop right and that coffee shop has been you know there since the the you know napoleon's troops had coffee uh, at 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 that place right <laughs> and i'm sitting there and you know there are these women who uh, start singing right almost impromptu and you know they're having a gala of a time and you know some of them are wearing uh, uh you know scarves and you know, some are covered some are not some are wearing in jeans right and just a mixed bag and uh they are singing and chanting and the crowd joins in you know just felt as safe as i have felt anywhere else in the world uh, and just those little things that you know little stereotypes that we uh, otherwise uh, take to our travels which uh, which crash only once you are there and you have experienced it yeah 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 so true it's 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 interesting to me also how you have been regarded as so being brown in the middle east and it reminds me of my uh, one time i went to turkey and i was walking on the streets of istanbul and some guy stopped his car and angrily asked me directions in turkish which i obviously could not respond to and he was so pissed off that i wouldn't tell him he refused to consider that i might not be a local <laughs> and i was thinking about this that there's this sense when we travel and how we travel as brown people because our traveling is also it's the best 
time maybe in history to be brown <laughs> is it like could you say that because in terms of our ability to see the world in terms of our ability to to command and to uh, our ability to deserve respect from the rest of the world it is an unprecedented time and in terms of being able to travel around the world with uh, being able to grab visas being able to get permission to go it is also an unprecedentedly best time ever in history so it's it's interesting to go to these places where we are regarded a certain way and then to go to places where we are regarded a different way so when you grow up in india you think of the west we never think of further east of us we always think that the rest of the world is the west but the west does not include africa the west does not include the middle east because the middle east is still east it's not not quite west except israel might be west but the rest <laughs> of it is the east it's this very peculiar notion we have of the rest of the world so what when you when we travel to places that are like ours in terms of the living in inside of history in terms of the amount of uh, the the suffering or the troubles sharing those kind of problems with colonialism with the white gaze it's a very different experience as a traveler so could you tell me uh, what it's is is do you feel a difference when you travel to other parts of the world Nishat, again, you know, it is such an amazing, it's an amazing question, right? You know, there is so much to talk uh, about this and, and, and we should for a little bit, right? Uh, I always consider the the two assets I have when it comes to travel is an American passport and a brown skin. The American passport gets me in, the brown skin gets me out. <laughs> um you know uh, and you know i uh, something that i realized when i was you know very close to syria right and uh, you know as part of my travel and i was still trying to figure out is there a way to get to damascus right and this is days of isis and the guy says you know hey you have american passport you can get in wherever you want to and it, it's amazing to hear that right he says getting out you be careful right? <laughs> that, that that's that that's not that easy but then he adds well, you know he's like you know you pass off as a rebek you might be able to do that right and so i i, I realized that you know hey that that's such a great privilege uh, at that point in time to have those two things together um but in many senses nishant you are absolutely right that this is a a great time to be able to travel with brown skin i think this is this is that decade or couple of decades where the brown skin has earned respect in the eyes of the world um and i might be biased about this but i think technology uh, or what you know the the tech worker has lent itself to that uh i mean i just came back from tunisia right and there is a indian restaurant which is top 10 tunisian restaurant right and it, it was amazing that to 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 see that and i you know went to that place and talked to the chef and you know he's a friend by now right and you know he says tech workers right and they you know there are a bunch of people who are from uh, you know pakistan and bangladesh and india who are who come here as tech workers and uh, they come here and they eat here so we are here and you know it, it in in a way there is not a single country that i have traveled to where there isn't an indian store by now right and which tells you that 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 
the brown skin has become mainstream in many ways. It does not raise eyebrows, right? In fact, right. I feel that there are, you know, I feel more foreign in the Midwest, right, in America than I do in many places in the world. Uh, yeah. That, that yeah. is true. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, the tech workers, and of course, you can't go to any place in the world that does not know Shah Rukh Khan. When I was, uh, so I was traveling in Morocco and across the street, people would start singing songs at me <laughs> from Shah Rukh Khan movies. Or from, uh, if depending, so they were also giving away their age. A certain group of people would uh, sing Raj Kapoor songs. The next generation would talk about Rishi Kapoor. Then there was Shah Rukh Khan. And then the youngest people would talk about Varun Dhawan and uh, new actors and all of these people. But everywhere I went, it was, you come from the country of Shah Rukh Khan. You come from the country of Amitabh Bachchan. Please come in. Let's bargain. Let me give you some juice. Let me give you some tea or coffee. It was just, just delightful. Like never, I have never been treated that way in another country. It's amazing. Yeah, and so true. You know, you have never thought of Bollywood as a brand ambassador for, for India. Right? Never, right? Growing up, movies was always something that you don't really, you know, uh, you were not allowed to read film magazines. There was no stardust at home. Or you're not allowed to talk about movie, right? Just not what you do. It's part of the Indian culture, right? It's only when you uh, come to these places where, uh, uh, you know, that, you know, Hindi, a little bit of Hindi, a little bit of Shah Rukh Khan has got me through checkpoints, yeah, right? You yeah. know, I remember this, uh, you know, uh, this very stern-looking uh, character on the boundary of country, between country A and country B, right? Who asked me five questions about Malika Shanawat, right? <laughs> because he, uh, you know, I, I used to introduce myself as Al-Hindi. Right, mm -hmm. so I would always say Al Hindi, right? Not 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 American, but Al Hindi. And he says Al Hindi from where? And I would say Mumbai. I said Mumbai, Malika Shalawat. And he had five questions, and it, <laughs> it's just amazing that you know here is this guy is holding my passport in his hand, and I'm I'm all I'm thinking of is the passport, and you know are you going to stamp it or not? Uh, and I'm talking about this, you know, uh, this actress. It, it's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you spoke about just now was uh, how people would see you and think, what are you doing sketching here instead of going around doing some actual work? And part of the confusion was maybe they thought of you as Egyptian. But another aspect of this I was thinking is that there is this sense that these peculiar things are only done by the <laughs> foreigners who come here. You are not supposed to be doing these peculiar things. And I was thinking uh, now from reading your book also about how people perceive sketchers and artists. And maybe you can tell me a little bit about how David Roberts was perceived in his environment from, you've read accounts, you've read, of course, the few words that he would choose to express himself with, but you've also read the accounts of his co-travelers and you've read his biography. So maybe can you tell me a little bit about how he was seen in the Middle East at that time when he was making this journey and how in comparison, maybe uh, contrast it with how you have been uh, perceived. So uh, Nishan, uh, David Roberts was traveling in a bit of a bubble. Uh, he was traveling with a caravan. He had guides. Uh, he had a visa from the, you know, Pasha of, Cairo to be able to travel to many places. Uh, so he was, you know, in that in, in that sense protected. This was also a time when uh, 
Muhammad Ali, right, who was the the Pasha or the king of Egypt at that point in time, was trying to deal with the Western world for technology, right? He was trying to buy technology because he was essentially at war with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and so he was welcoming the Western world and he wanted to show the Western world how progressive he was, right? He wanted to make it look safe, right? And so it was very important for him that ambassadors like David Roberts had that that experience, right? So in, in a sense, uh-huh. uh, right. in a sense, he was he was protected, right? And you can see in his writing, right, if David Roberts' journals, and and once you read it, so you can see that some of his sketches, paintings have that element of danger very nicely depicted as well. That despite all of this, uh, on a on a regular basis, you know, he struggled to sketch on the streets, right? Just the way, uh, you know, your uh, astute observation. You know, why is this guy, you know, you know, sketching? Uh, why is he standing in the middle of the street and sketching? Back in those days, um, there was almost this feeling that people coming from the Western world were there in search of some buried treasure, right? And that was at a, at a monument or at a site. And that, that treasure they could take away magically by measuring uh, and sketching and being scientific about it, right? And this was, you know, we are talking about the Bedouin tribes, right? So it was, in, in many senses, it was uh, not okay, not allowed for people to do uh, what, what David Roberts was doing, right? And so he was, you know, uh, very regularly jostled on the streets of Cairo. He talks about this very interesting uh, event where somebody threw a half-eaten uh, orange that lands on his sketchbook, right? Uh, slushy missile is what he calls it, uh, right? And and so, and things like that where his experience is replete with some of those incidences, right? It's It's peppered in there, right? He's faced that despite despite the bubble that he was traveling in. Yeah, so there is a bit of, well, you know, like one's journals are, of course, their own filter. So there is a sense of uh, the kind of uh, unhappiness that he was, uh, uh, he was being, like he was uh, facing, that he's not being welcomed here. He's not, uh, his work is not welcome here. But there is also a sense that comes to me of somebody taking from an experience what they are already uh, expecting from it. So if you come at an interaction of, you know, a cross-cultural interaction with a combative attitude, with the kind of prejudice, like common Islamophobic prejudices of the time, then you are going to take away those common Islamophobic prejudices of the time as well. So, um, uh, I'm I'm curious about now, uh, like whether this also conflicts or whether this also has to do with a little bit of how iconography and imagery is perceived because uh, and this isn't purely I'm not purely speaking of Islamic cultures or Islamic ideas I'm also thinking of how you know in the West you have we have a tradition of uh, uh, painters painters known by name right from the 1400s and 1500s onwards but this kind of individualistic painter appreciation or this 
specific culture of art or this specific cultural attitude towards how art is made and how it is engaged with and how it is preserved is not present in the same way in the east and do you think do you think there's a bit of contrast of these of these values also here how is an artist perceived and what is the business of art all about when somebody comes from another world to to this world i think the eastern i i don't think that let me say that again i don't think the east is used to seeing art being created they can consume art but seeing it being done uh is almost seen as wasteful right you're wasting your time you know you shouldn't be doing this you should be doing something else this is not going to help you earn your livelihood right you, you can see that that emanate that come across to you uh very very strongly and i think there is a little bit of a stereotype in like you had said earlier that this is something that those other people should be doing right not you right you should be with me here down on the streets right you know crossing this road not standing there mm-hmm. and sketch me crossing the road right and i think <laughs> i think there is a little bit of that uh, in that right you know even now when i sketch in india right people are saying why are you doing this take a photo and leave right mm-hmm. yeah. uh, right that that other thought is still not uh, has not percolated down uh, completely Let's take a short break here. Ahead we will cover the subject of orientalism and how even people from the quote unquote orient can indulge in this unconscious bias. We talk about the enduring impact of David Roberts's work after nearly 2 centuries and then we get into the final of the three journeys of this episode, the journey of how Sunil made his book. But before we do those things I would love to have a minute of your time to thank the wonderful people that make this show possible. The Sneaky Art Podcast is an independent one-person production supported entirely by Sneaky Art Insiders, the super listeners and fans who appreciate my work. If you're an insider listening to this right now, I want to thank you for the generosity you have shown towards this show. I hope that I'm able to sufficiently convey my gratitude through the quality of work that you have enabled me to put in. I have big plans for this show and the new season next year is going to be very exciting. I want to keep doing it myself and I want to keep doing it the way that I like to do it. Insiders help me accomplish this. If you've enjoyed this episode and maybe another episode before this, if you've heard maybe 3 or 4 or 5 episodes by now, I imagine you also like me doing things exactly the way I want to. This holiday season help me stay on this path. Become a sneaky art insider. The annual pledge comes to less than $1 per episode. With that out of the way, let's dive back into today's episode. Orientalism. What does it mean and can we even avoid it? you also write about resonating with david roberts's work in this way that i'm i'm thinking about this uh, place in cairo with, with with the silk merchants where i think one of the first instances you mention in the book of you finding yourself 
at the set of a David Roberts painting and how you noticed one thing and another and then suddenly they fit into place and you realized you are standing pretty much exactly where he was. So, uh, what, uh, what I want to now come back to is some more of these similarities that we could find ourselves sharing if we are artists or creative professionals of any kind with these people 200 years ago also at you know facing these uh, challenges against technology like the coming of new forces redefining what art means redefining what their business means so thinking of david roberts's hashtag artist life <laughs> give me a sense of uh, now he's come on this trip he's decided that he's going to share these image he's going to make these images of the holy land what is his sense of his audience he is clearly not interested in engaging with the local population he has uh, the in the obviously the biases and the ideas he's carrying as a person of his time but he also has a very clear sense of whom he is trying to please whom he's trying to provide something to so give me a uh, give me a sense of his audience and how he went about meeting what they wanted So, Nishant, this is um, David Roberts in a large... David Roberts is creating his art to be consumed by the West of the 19th century, right? The West of the 19th century, uh, early days of uh, industrialization, right? Which means there is a little bit more time to consume and read, right? There's curiosity of things happening elsewhere. Uh, Egypt has opened up in a sense, you know, there was this box of the Pharaoh's land, right? That now suddenly can be visited if you add the means. Um, and then the, the, the land of the Bible, right? You know, essentially this is where, uh, the Bible took place, right? This is where, um, Jesus Christ walked, right? Uh, the, you know, this is where, uh, things that have been mentioned in depth in Bible have happened, right? But they have never been seen. This is mm -hmm. pre-camera, right? So in a in a large sense, David Roberts is trying to capture these unseen places, uh historical or otherwise, right? You no know, Bible is seen as history uh, in that part of the world and by that type, right? And he's trying to capture that and frame it and take it. So very largely, he's trying to, uh, and and he's and 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 you can see him trying to build the book as he goes, like literally, right? Uh, and you know, David Roberts was a was a masterful uh, marketer when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you uh, if you know this, but you know, he sold his book as a subscription, right? We we are so used to the SaaS world. But, you know, his book was sold as a subscription where a part of the book, right, you know, people paid, a, you know, a subscription to get a book wow. on a regular basis, right? They would, right. they would get what today is a, is a, is a print for us. Yeah. Would get sent to them and then people added it to a portfolio and it became a book, right? He never pushed a book out the way we are used to seeing a book pushed out. Right. So in that sense, he had a very clear sense of who the audience was. And because of uh, his understanding of that audience, what is called Orientalism, uh, very naturally creeps into his work, right? And, you know, Orientalism at one point in time was purely the, uh, was considered the study of 
uh, you know, the Islamic culture or Islam uh, and and the Islamic art and architecture and such, right? Which down the line, because of uh, Edward Said, uh, today is considered, uh, you know, has, has a slightly more overarching meaning uh, in terms of how colonists of that time treated uh, the lads that they went to and colonized, right? And you can see that 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 colonism. Um, so, so actually, let me explain that just just a little bit more, right? So what Edward Said says is that when the the white colonists came to the brown geographies, when they started to rule. Uh, these places and when they started to extract resources out you know plunder it in a way uh, and take it back they wanted to show themselves as the saviors of those lands that they, that they came in there and you know there was this uncivilized uh, land of people who were backwards who were unwilling to learn the new ways of things and they came in there and fixed it for them right mm -hmm. uh, improved them, improved the life of, right, uh, while they were there, right, which is, you know, again, you know, uh, them trying to paint themselves in a favorable way uh, as part of history, right. And I think hey, you can see aspects of that in David Roberts' work without him necessarily wanting it to be that way uh, completely. He was just, you know, he knew that the audience preferred it in a certain way. Um, you see that he has sketched uh, what was the prevailing notion of Egypt at that point in time, right? And which, by the way, I wouldn't fault him. That's how I caught myself doing the same. Right? Yeah, yeah. That let's let's get into that because, uh, like, uh, the interesting part of a uh, passage of your book about uh, this subject was not just me learning about the Oriental gaze of uh, some of these artists, but also how these biases seep into all of us and how even people quote-unquote of the Orient can <laughs> part indulge in Orientalism in terms of how we think of images, in terms of how we think of what to represent. So tell me a little bit about this experience in which you were your own bias, potential bias was pointed out to you and what you thought of it. Yeah, and I think, uh, Nishant, I think when, when you are uh, when you are traveling to a place, right, there is especially in the context that we live, uh, we have a fair idea of where we are going and why we are going there, right? You are, you know, I go to Egypt because I want to see Egypt of the past, right? If I go to Egypt and I, you know, enter this uh, building that has, you know, hydraulic uh, sliding doors and, you know, uh, cool AC and I go up an escalator to a squeaky clean, coffee shop right is not the experience i'm wanting right i can mm. i can get that a oh, hundred other places right i'm going to egypt because i want to be in a you know in a back street in a narrow street you know dusty and you know there is this little coffee shop and you know he's making coffee for me i want that experience right we, we go searching for that experience in a way right that's our bias and we have gone for that bias um mm. and uh, and you and you and you find what you search, uh, what you look for, right? And especially for you and I, right, the artists that we are, and when we are documenting it, 
you tend to accentuate that uh, in your work, right? I mean, there are so many times where, um, you know, I'm sitting where I'm sitting, right? And, you know, and, and you mentally edit out the car, right? Yeah. Right? Like, right. There is the, like, <laughs> right? And you, and you don't want the car here, which is, by the way, another reason I, you know, you know, photography was, right? You know, it's like, uh, you know, it takes a Photoshop for you to take that car out, but here, you know, I can just take it out, right? And, and, you, and, you, and you want, you want that primal experience that only you felt, right? Very individualistic, you know, this is my memory. Nobody else has this, right? I saw this, nobody else uh, has seen it, right? <laughs> that That inherent, need to have uh, something that individualistic right and i think i think that that bias very easily plays into it and it when it comes to documentation plays into it as well yeah yeah and this it feels like this bias is fed by so many things like uh that i wonder if it is something that is just uh, like i i understand how useful it is to be aware of it but i wonder if it is even possible to undo it if it is even advisable to undo it because in the idea of undoing it would then mean for you to not be less of who you are like to be less of where you come from and what fascinates you about the place you have gone to so you might go to uh, like if when we grow up in india and we think of going to europe we think oh we are going to the first world we want to see the development we want to see how everything is great and when we go to other places we want to we want to of course we want to confirm our mental images of those places so other than being aware of the this these biases within us is there anything you can do to undo them is it even advisable to undo them i think um the question is if not for the biases why would you want to travel i can differentiate between uh, Medina in Egypt versus Israel versus Tunisia, right? That th that these three somewhere give me very different experiences. When I'm there, I know I can say, you know, hey, when I was in Cairo, this is what I felt. I'm not seeing it here, right? Mm -hmm. That ability to differentiate is as much part of that knowledge, whether you call it bias or otherwise, right? Is up to us how, how we label it, right? But, but you know, I, I'm going there to see these things being done differently, right? Otherwise, nice. you know, you are in Turkey, but then I'm sure you have had Turkish coffee in many other places, including, you know, you know there are places in Sweden where you can get great Turkish coffee because it is served to you as a Turkish coffee. But, but we are going to those places because you actually want to experience what has been very clearly articulated to you by uh, experts and academicians as something that is different, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the reason why, you know, for me, the coffee that I get in Chennai versus the coffee that I get in Bangalore is different because it is different. And somebody has told me that and I've gone in knowing it is different. And then I conform and say, yes, it is different. And I'm here because I want to experience it. At least for me, I'm very much aware of those biases, right? And in many ways, I am traveling to either confirm, right? Or to say, you know, to basically being able to comment on that bias, right? You know, for mm -hmm. example, I was, I was in Tunisia um, uh, a few weeks ago, right? And it was, it is amazing how, how much 
the stereotype of Tunisia in U.S. is that of an Arabic country and how much it is not an Arabic country in the sense of an Arabic country, right? Uh, the, the the place is absolutely gorgeous, right? spectacularly clean, right? You can sit down in the middle of a street in the Medina of, you know, in the smaller towns in Tunisia. It, it is that uh, you know, uh, they have a, a, a woman as a prime minister, right? They have a lady prime minister. Uh, women don't need to be covered, right? You know, it's very liberal, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? And for me, it was super important that I, you know, that I know the bias and I know the, the anti-bias and I want right. to be able to comment on both. And yeah, I want to see yeah. it for myself. Yeah, yeah. That that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Um. Now, uh, thinking along these terms, there's so much for us to now even be able to, once we have this understanding, to be able to relate with these artists of the past. Because as we go about this business of being urban sketchers ourselves, and if we travel to different countries and we are recording things in our sketchbooks, we are consciously or subconsciously thinking of the people who will see them. So in a sense, we are uh, operating a little bit like David Roberts in the sense that our primary consideration are the people for whom we are painting, even if we are primarily painting for ourselves. So as an urban sketcher, as a, a traveler, you travel through this path with his writing, with his art with you. Can you tell me about some ways that connecting with an artist 180, nearly 200 years before you, how did it uh, how did it help you as an urban sketcher? W were there specific urban sketching tips that you can give us from 1839? <laughs> well, you know, uh, the one massive uh, change David Roberts drove in my style is uh, drawing people in my sketches, right? For the, for the longest time, um, and this is especially remnants of my photography days, right? Where I would try to not have people unless I needed them for scale as a, as a silhouette mm -hmm. somewhere, right? Uh, I did not like having people in my in my compositions, but I think it is after seeing what and how David uh, incorporates local people very strategically in a composition. Uh, you know, I almost, you know, it took me a couple of years before I embarked on the trip. You know, it took me a couple of years to practice drawing people because I knew, right, that I was going to be standing where he stood, sketching what he sketched. So I needed to incorporate, you know, incorporate people into my sketches. Um, and, you know, in a funny way, today I cannot think of a composition until I have people in it. Right, it's almost the diametric opposite. Right, you know, it's I, I can't draw just people. Right, you know that that kind of figure sketching is not my cup of tea. Uh, but you know, otherwise, uh, in a given composition, if I cannot put people in the foreground, right, that composition does not play out to me anymore. Just the fact that I'm incorporating people in my sketches for the last six or seven years has changed the way I travel uh, completely, diametric opposite. Um, I'm a loner, right? Uh, I'm a, I do 
better by myself or small groups, right? You know, uh, I consider myself an introvert in many, mm-hmm. many ways. Um, for me to uh, mix and mingle and say hello to strangers is, uh, is it does not come easy. Um, the fact that now I'm going to plonk myself, right, in a spot for an hour has forced me to have, you know, a relationship with the people that I'm surrounded with. Uh, you know, invariably when I am sketching uh, outdoors, uh, when I'm traveling, I'm sitting uh, at a shop, right? You know, it's it's a it's a vendor. Uh, he's selling fruits, or you know, he's selling vada pav, or he's selling you know kaskrut. Because he's my foreground, right? Somewhere, you know, I'm framing the rest of the composition based on that. Mm-hmm. And that cannot be done without saying, you know, hello and having, you know, uh, uh, spoken or communicated uh, five sentences to him. Forces you to know five words in that language and uh, forces you to acknowledge what he's doing. And, you know, and sometimes the moment you start looking, it's, you know, it's fascinating what he's doing. Uh-huh. And then he becomes a part of the sketch inadvertently, right? You know, he become he's in that sketch and then he wants to look at it. And then he comments, you know, I've faced that uh, during my travel as part of this book where people would reach across and, you know, ask me a question, right? You know, for example, you know, I was not comfortable drawing eyes for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And people would say, you know, hey, why do your figures not have eyes? And, you know, one person actually forced me to draw eyes. And I drew them because, you know, he was otherwise not letting me go. And it was, it's a beautiful memory now for me. Uh, There is this other time where people have, you know, they see me sketching and they say, oh, that person, you know, his name is Abu. And then, you know, I've written his name down. And they are now very much part of that sketch. Right. So that building that relationship, uh, even if it is for a couple of hours, right, is enormous. Uh, but in many ways, a lot of these people are today on my WhatsApp. Uh, and I still communicate with them. Uh, the The person who I uh, met in St. Catherine's Monastery, right? You know, there is this, you know, he's, he's the keeper of uh, of that church, right? You know, he's, he's a helper. And... Uh, when I was there, you know, he happened to look at my sketch, sketchbook, right? And then he asked for the sketchbook and then he flipped back and forth. And then he says, you know, hey, I really like what you're doing. Can you come back? And, you know, he uh, later, you know, next day, he allowed us to parts of the monastery that are not open to other people. Uh, and he allowed us to roam for, uh, you know, for, for a couple of hours. Uh, that person I communicate even today on WhatsApp, right? And, and, okay. and, and you know, and you know, sometimes it is just photos that we exchange, right? You know, I was in Tunisia and I was in a mosque and, you know, I send him that photo. Uh, but it's that, that these relationships are uh, far transgress the actual sketching type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these relationships also if you're introverted especially, they come from pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And I talk about this quite often, this incredible importance to push ourselves out of our, to step just a little bit outside your comfort zone. 
because that's where all the great discovery lies and a part of that is also uh, accommodating non sketchers who are in your group and you are the sketcher and you are conscious of the time that you are demanding from them and the time that you are demanding in spaces that are not particularly photogenic or not particularly important but they're just part of the journey and they must be done uh, what's that been like you traveled with so many different people uh who evid who must have had all kinds of different ideas about spending time waiting for an artist to finish their watercolors <laughs> i think i think the the cheapest trick there is to incorporate them into the sketch and then <laughs> then, then then they don't have a uh, then there's no pushback anymore right they then the then they get it uh very automatically um but i think uh, i think in in general um people who are not sketching traveling with people who are not sketching uh forces you to not dwaddle for too long right um to be quick about certain things right you know certain places you know you have only 15 minutes to sketch you know that right you, you can sketch while people are having lunch right so if if there's 30 minutes for lunch i would eat in you know 5 minutes and then use 25 minutes for sketching right but then you know you have 25 minutes and that tells you how to use uh your sketchbook how much which part uh you would sketch and so on right you know these sometimes these constraints that are forced on you actually help you improve your craft in more than one ways absolutely yeah like i couldn't agree more like i really think constraints are the most most important way for us to get creative it's only when you don't have a clear path an easy path a comfortable path that you have to imagine something new that you have to create something new and that is the essence of all creativity just how you make your line how you make your line because someone is watching over your head how you make your line because suddenly someone wants you to draw eyes and how you make your lines because you have to finish a composition and you can't keep people waiting for more than 15 or 20 minutes all of that it it plays into our work and it plays into like the actual business of urban sketching is this it's actually to work within these constraints and i love that quote also you said before that we're not capturing a moment a drawing is like a time lapse and as a person who likes to draw uh, human activity wherever i go in busy cities and i'm drawing i'm very consciously aware of this fact that i'm drawing so many different moments that have never existed at a singular point of time the people i draw on the left side of my page have vanished by the time i reach the right side of my page the lighting has changed a little bit the with the things people if i draw around rush hour the things people are doing on the street have changed i can't even say that this is a typical 4 pm evening at this location because the whole context of why people are outside has changed people have just started going for dinner for example so um so many things change and so many things stay nonetheless the same other than the ruins other than the architecture that is thousands of years old what are some of those things that you found uh, through the accounts you read through the work you saw of david uh, that stayed the same in this part of the world when i think of that trip and then everything uh, after that trip uh, whenever i go to a place and i think of 
some before and after, right? I keep finding myself on that corner again and again. You know, the the, the you know the, the buildings are the same, right? Um, as a silhouette, even if I look at you know some of the things that I say, oh, that this is exactly what I saw in David Roberts. But then not really, right? You know, the balcony is different, right? And there are there are three arches here now. I can see two, right? So there is progress, there is change, right? Time has had its impact, right? But the silhouette remains the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is true about, you know, everything, right? You know, we think of it as, you know, hey, 200 years have passed and so much progress has been made and, you know, things are so different, right? People should behave, you know, differently or... Uh, uh, they should, you know, in a, in a given circumstance, they should behave differently. And, you know, it's not really, right? Like some of, um, you know, we have lived, when we live in a city or in a mohalla or we live in a place, right? You know, we, the history of that place is now part of our DNA. You do a certain things in a certain way because uh, of, you know, inadvertently, it has been done for a very, very, very long time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, an area is conservative, uh, or, you know, liberal. Um, and, you know, it continues to be that conservative or liberal, no matter how how much, you know, uh, time has changed, right? Yeah. So you see, you see people reacting uh, to certain stimuli in exactly the same way. Um, and that is, you know, in, in many senses, that is the beauty of it, right? You know, it, at the end of the day, uh, we want some predictability uh, in what is going to happen, right? We 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 all crave it as much as and and we all need it as much as we would like things to be impromptu every now and then, right? Yeah. We want to know that you know, or 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 we, or we find solace in the fact that you know, hey, I expected that guy to get angry and he got angry and happy, <laughs> right? Uh, and and that emotion. That you're able to trap or attract yeah. that emotion. Yeah. And it is like, it sounds like it would be a very rare instance, but I mean, it sounds like it would, it might be only a case, you know, someone might read this and think, oh, the Middle East hasn't changed so much. But <laughs> really, if we think about any 200 year old account, how used to are we to reading a 200 year old account and trying to follow those footsteps, trying to see what they saw and comparing what has changed and what has not. And uh, just as you mentioned, like so much changes, but the silhouette does not change. And I'm thinking of how much it that implies, how much a silhouette implies, what does it suggest? It says so much about geography. It says so much about how people live. It talks so much about cultures. So um, one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, when we were talking about how much things change, I think about the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s as this time of great change for even artists and illustrators. So before I found out about your book, um, I had I had just read this book by uh, William Dalrymple. It's called The Return of a King. And it's about the first Anglo-Afghan war from 1839 to 1842. And uh, his book is peppered and the cover, of course, is also a painting, but it is peppered with paintings by one of the members of the British East India Company, who was, I think he was a doctor or he was a medical professional, at least uh, in some capacity. And James Atkinson made these paintings during the march from uh, British India to Afghanistan to depose the king and to install this other guy. And then he was, uh, thankfully, he left two years before the disastrous retreat in which um, 
the entire army tried to exit after installing uh, after installing an unpopular king and they were met with they met with resistance the whole way and the led the story goes that only one person out of that whole troop made it back to uh, the punjab area and everybody else was picked out by the afghan snipers and uh, died to the cold died because of the conditions of the march and the opposition they faced so uh, a lot of things were changing then is uh, what i was coming to uh, photography would soon come in and photography would make these illustrated newspapers who themselves were only a couple of decades old obsolete at least the work of illustrators within them was rendered obsolete and artists must have felt this changing world around them now what i'm fascinated by the most about this situation is that somehow even in this time when definitively photography took over this business of representing the world this torch was passed to photography despite that david roberts's paintings have lasted they still hold cultural value like you mention uh, even finding them on these different spots that they were being sold by people to tourists uh, that this this is this is a paint like who who knows how much they knew about it or how much information they carried but i'm trying to understand this enduring value of the art created in this way is there any like can you tell me any specific reasons why david roberts's paintings of the holy land have endured through this uh, complete uh, reduction in status of art by photography and all the decades since then that so many people have gone and taken pictures of these parts of the world in a funny way nishant it goes back to orientalism his paintings depict the agelessness of the places that he has painted right the reason why a seller is selling that is because it literally represents what you can still see across 200 years it's it's almost like a photograph right so in a in, in a sense it accentuates the agelessness of that place um and and you know the fact that he he had he has he as, as a as a composition right he captured compositions that people can still better talks about him as an artist right he's it's like he has the best postcard that was that was painted and there's no way to improve what he has done right and in a in a in an interesting way uh, some of the earliest photographers right francis fitt is probably the earliest known uh, photographer who took a camera to egypt 1850s right so you know a you know couple of decades after david roberts but francis fitt in many senses was trying to copy compositions of david roberts right he was trying to stand in the same spot and take a photo right you know, there are many places where he says you know hey this is david roberts and this is the mistake david made and this is not the reality he's trying to show how his equipment and his craft right is better at capturing reality compared to an artist right so in, in many senses they were the photographers themselves were framing themselves as compared to the artists who stood there before them right uh nishan there's a there's a very interesting uh correlation i found and purely you know this has nothing but nerdiness written all over it but that that day when david roberts stood in that mosque 
and painted that mosque, right, which where I stood and, you know, sketched exactly what he sketched, is the exact day on which the first foot, first camera was announced to the world, right? It, it's, a, it's just an interesting day, right? That somebody was standing in, you know, in front of a crowd in Paris on that exact day and talking about this, you know, hey, there is this invention called, you know, uh, you know, they used to call it the daguerreotypes. types. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it was a French person called Daguerre, and Daguerre, they were called daguerreotypes. Daguerreotypes, right? And so, and yeah. so, and so, and that that invention was being announced on that exact day, right? right? Uh, so, in in a sense, uh, David Roberts probably never competed with uh, photography, and even photography for the first uh, 40, 50 years. Uh, uh, struggled in many ways, right? Photography was very difficult back in those days, right? You had to you had to literally develop it, develop the photograph within seconds of taking it, right? So you had to carry right. this entire studio. It was not as point and shoot as it is today, right? Right. Uh, neither was it easy to capture uh, the earlier photographs. Earliest photographs were compared to illustrations and sketches and paintings. And they never could enjoy the the wide angle that uh, painters could manage, or they could juxtapose two two images that did not exist. Right? They would take away a shoulder of a mountain so that they could show what's behind, which a camera couldn't, or you know the camera could not seamlessly put people in the front. Right? Uh, you know, especially in these parts of the world, it was impossible to get people to stand in front of a camera for them to be photographed, right? right? So for the longest time, uh, the photographers actually were second-class citizens, right? It's much, much later that uh, photographers started to enjoy the same level of uh, class as an artist, right? You know, almost the, the, you know, I think of National Geographic, where, you know, and the, and the photography that National Geographic Nagio, in a way, made popular is where uh, the scales uh, were heaved. Until then, uh, photography was still more documentary. It was, you know, it it captured reality, but right. it wasn't beautiful. It wasn't a composition. Right, that was still an artist's uh, dominion, so to speak. Right. Yeah, that is that's quite in, that's really interesting to me. Uh, it seems uh, one aspect of this uh, of photography initially lagging behind art or having less value has to do with the technical limitations. It didn't have the flexibility that, of course, cameras would have 50 years later, 100 years later, and the limitless possibilities we have today. But also they were appreciative of, uh, and maybe because this is the highest ideal to shoot for painting, but they were appreciative of these uh, creative liberties that the artist could take of changing the composition, of changing who's what's in the forefront and what's not, of removing certain things entirely. And uh, it makes me uh, wonder, and so this is my next question, like even looking at your life, uh, taking photos when you travel to starting to sketch when you travel, and generally the kind of appreciation people, uh, the way that people regard photos 
from somewhere and the way they might regard drawings from somewhere have we reached a like a turning like a 180 degree point where things like our incentives and our desires and what we want and what is on top is completely reversed from 1839 i think it's approaching it uh it's approaching it purely because today people take the same photos over and over and over right you are trying to stand in the same spot that this other photographer stood and take uh, your picture of it right so many times uh, in these popular spots you actually see a line of people wanting to take their photos right so there, you know there is there is very little individualism that is left anymore uh, when the camera is in the hands of the normal you and i is right even the normal you and i when we take a selfie in front of you know colosseum in the back right you know it, it's the same frame in in many many yeah. ways right yeah and people are trying to look for different ways to document themselves right for example you know drone is a good example of uh finding an angle that has never been seen before right, right. Uh, you know and that that birds eye view totally lends itself to a different you know opening up a new horizon uh you know i'm i'm starting to see people travel with professional photographers i don't know if you have heard of this but they actually have you know if if you're going to three cities you actually commission people in those three cities who come and travel with you for that entire day and then they are clicking you you are no longer taking your own photos right and so and so this this again what you are trying to find there is individualism right is right. can i find a frame that nobody else has right just for the record i'll interrupt you to say that um uh, like a few years ago we were looking at uh, family photos of my maternal uh, grandparents and my grandfather in the 50s when he went on vacation with my grandmother hired a photographer to take photos of them <laughs> that's amazing it's quite likely he did that because he did not have a camera right or maybe he just didn't want to go through the process of taking photos himself he was the kind of person who would get someone to do something that's for him that's amazing it's it's amazing right you know so many years back and you know again you know this is history repeating itself right uh you know it's you know and, and you know you think of it in practical terms right you know would you leave a tripod in the middle of somewhere and go back and stand back and take your photo right you know in in the places in the world where people would run away with their camera right, right? just right. logistically <laughs> just logistically you can't do that you had to have a third person to take a, a photo but you know it's it, that's such a beautiful anecdote right there yeah. um but but you know yes you know people uh, go a long way to get themselves documented and i think you know i think sketching is fine is is finding uh its place uh, on that mantle i am finding sketchers everywhere i go right of course i'm seeking them right i'm i'm <laughs> actively seeking them right so for example if i'm before i go anywhere i look for the urban sketchers group there and you know i announce myself and i you know try to sketch with them i try to get them to sketch with me you know even in my book i've traveled with a couple of you know local sketchers but right. but even otherwise everywhere i go you know i have met people who are sketching right you know in in you know, i was in tunisia of course you know there was this group of you know six uh, uh you know architecture students who were sitting and sketching and i sat and sketched with them but i'm i'm seeing a lot of that yeah yeah 
are there other, if you if you've sketched with people from different parts of the world do you see differences in things again of things that are cons- like uh it might be the vestiges of an orientalist gaze but you know sometimes this doesn't apply when you're not traveling when you're in your own city also you can be seeing things from this filter of what is worth showing what is worth being painted you know uh like a, a large part of the well not resistance but confusion that you faced during your trip explaining your what you were doing to people what uh, resonated with me was this exercise of explaining to people that i am not doing something completely useless because there is this idea that some things are not worth the bother of painting why would you bother to paint this thing why like a uh, part of taking a photo and move on is that paints and art the word art it's such a heavy word for three letters is reserved for certain subjects and is not uh, usable for certain other subjects do you find in urban sketching like uh, an irreverence towards this idea or do you find uh, also that people in different parts of the world reflect these cultural differences in different ways what are sketchers like in tunisia what are sketchers like in the middle east versus sketchers in seattle i think the lens changes very quickly it, it's it's amazing how this happens right i think uh, a traveler or a tourist is trying to get the wide angle right whereas the local is using macro lens and trying to zoom into something which is uh, right the you know you're coming to seattle next week right and i'm sure you know pike place is where you know you're planning to go and you know you're looking for that the big signage right the 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 place as you have seen it right you're trying to capture that mm-hmm. the local has already captured it 16 times right so the chances are that the people who are sketching with you locally right yes they they want to sit next to you and they want to see what you are doing but they are trying to capture what their style whatever their style is right mm-hmm. people who do people sketching are going to capture the three people crossing the road you know there are people who like to you know paint cars there are people who like to just paint shadows like i've seen people who their entire sketchbook is they have sketched these banisters on staircases right just different banisters beautiful beautiful sketchbook full of just that right it, it's amazing to see how you know local sometimes tend to focus on these you know on this detail versus versus the large picture Yeah, yeah yeah without saying the bigger picture okay they obviously get the bigger picture they are in the bigger picture hence they are able to see that detail exactly it's it's the next step it's once you've done this and once this does not hold wonder for you what next right. so it's the next level of diving into what is what is worth showing so uh t- tell me about when you got this idea that you want to make a book out of these uh, these different things that you've captured and that you would want to tell like it's not simply a collection of your drawings and then david roberts's drawings there is so much of your thoughts in it that is it it is a travelog and i can only imagine how much time it took to write this but uh, tell me about how you got this idea that it should be a travelog it should be out uh, i should that you should make a book about it and how you got started on this journey the idea that it could become a book was a late thought right it was definitely an afterthought uh, that is not how it started it started uh, primarily for me as an experience that i wanted to have the the book happened much later 
as I, um, I think as part of retracing his journey, right, I realized that his work culminated into a book and I decided I should be following him even at that, uh, <laughs> if you know what I mean, right? That for me, it was, and you know, for me, I didn't think of it as a book, as something that I would want to publish, but something that I've wanted to compose, right? I wanted to put it together such that it had a flow, right? I came back with four sketchbooks and I look at those four sketchbooks and every page, right, is, uh, you know, is a fresh memory for me. But I wanted to compose it as a journey, not for anybody else, for me, for myself, mm -hmm. right? You know, everything that I do in that sense, I think of it as for an audience of one, which is me, right? And so as I started putting that book together, I realized that, you know, I looked at my journal and I had things to say which were much beyond captions. And so I started to write them. And, you know, I never do anything half-heartedly, right? If I'm doing something, then I'm going at it, right? Which meant I was waking up at four o'clock in the morning every day to write for one and a half hours, even if, you know, there were days when there wasn't, you know, more than five words I wrote, but I would still get up at, you know, four between 4 to 5.30 was my writing time, right? And so I, pro you know, sat for months and wrote everything. And then, uh, you know, eventually when, when that thing, right, got put together, right? Um, and since I don't do things in half-hearted way, right, you know, I went to read Z and found an editor and asked her to read it. And, you know, I expected her to want to look at the book which primarily meant you know the text and the sketches put together and she all she asked for was the the text part of it right which was which came as a shock to me because for me the book was all about my sketches but she read the book and she only read the book and she said you know hey Sunil you know I know you're wanting to self-publish this I just wanted to you know self-publish it and get it out of the way right so that I know that I've taken a project to completion, right? I, you know, did not want to give it any more uh, thought, right? She said, you know, hey, this book has a little more than that, right? I think you should try to find a publisher, right? And so she, uh, even then she had not seen my sketches, right? Uh, she saw my sketches, my editor, my first editor saw my sketches only after the book was printed, right? Almost nine months later. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in that sense, then, you know, I embarked on the third part of the journey, right? I almost, I almost say that the book is not one journey, it is three journeys, right? The journey, the journey that is written in the book, the writing of the book, which is a journey by itself. And then the, you know, getting it, you know, finding a publisher and getting it published, right? Was, was a nine month journey by itself uh, that, that I enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about this journey. This the last final finding a publisher. So when I was writing the book, I had taken up a new job. You know, I was working in a startup. I was traveling, right, uh, getting up early in the morning and you know finishing it. Uh, when I thought I had a draft that I was that I was happy with that that I was right, and when the editor asked me to look for a publisher. Again, you know, I, you know, I, I approached it the way an engineer would, right? You know, you know, how, how do you look for a publisher, right? That's, that's probably was my first Google query. <laughs> uh, I must have reached out to 
close to 150 agents and publishers. Oh, wow. Right? Uh, and again, you know, this was uh, this was in the middle of, right at the beginning of COVID, right? So most publishers were getting my emails while they were taking care of their, you know, kids and infants and dogs at home, right? And so, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that my emails got lost in the middle of so many things that were happening back in that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, you know, I would get up every day and write at least one email to, uh, you know, to to find an agent, right? So I would right. get up every day and write to one agent. And for me, writing to one agent, you know, I can't just write an email to an agent. For me to write an email to an agent, I would probably spend, you know, two hours reading about that agent. I would have read the last 10 articles, the, you know, seen two YouTube videos. I knew that person intimately by the time I wrote it, right? So my every email was a relationship in more than one ways, right? Most of my emails said, you know, hey, my book is like that book that you have published, but with this, right? So there was, right? And then, but then 150 of those emails, right, would not, sometimes get a response there was this i remember 40th or 50th email into this process i received an email which said i don't think we want to publish your book and i was just happy that somebody wrote back right right <laughs> uh and you know and eventually i found uh you know chin music who happens to be in seattle right you know of all the places and he their office by the way is where you are going to be on saturday right you know in in, oh, right. in, in pike place market uh, it's amazing sometimes the solution is right in your backyard, right? Uh, but then, uh, you know, I eventually found them through uh, a publicist that I had reached out to. And then, you know, the the, the book is here. Yeah. And uh, what has this experience been like since then? Like since having the book, uh, um, actually, even after finding a publisher, this process of getting the book made a certain way, uh, what, what did you exercise a lot of uh, creative control here, or, or did you make a lot of the creative decisions here? How how was that? Like, to you've given your art, you've put down your words, you've got the the work of David Roberts. Who who puts it together in the book the way that it is? So the in that sense, the book is a hundred percent mine. Uh, you know, I worked with a wonderful designer. Uh, who helped me put it all together. Uh, but I got the complete creative freedom from Bruce at Chin Music to make the book the way I wanted it, right? You know, it is laid out, you know, you know, every decision, whether it is good or bad, right, is mine in that book. Uh, uh, especially when it comes to brickbats, right? You know, I've heard a few people say, you know, hey, that font, you know, not not a big fan of that font. And I get where they're coming from, but, you know, hey, that is, you know, that's me, right? right, um, right, right. Um, uh, in that sense. Uh, the the making of the book, I think, was a one part. It, it was a creative exercise, right? It was me and, you know, two other people. So in that sense, uh, I really enjoyed it. The part that uh, took a lot out of it was the point at which the book went to a printer and the book actually coming back from a printer. That itself was a journey. Right. This was, uh, you know, COVID, you know, supply chain, log jams, paper shortages, right? You know, it 
the the release of the book was pushed back and pushed back and pushed back right you know that is what what happened until you know the book finally came out uh, early early this year and it was such a sigh of relief uh, when the book came out mm-hmm. uh, by the way here's a here's a quick um, quick little anecdote it is because i am having this conversation with you that i actually opened the book and went through it page by page today morning right <laughs> so since i you know i received the book in early january 2002 and i you know i i unboxed it i flipped through it and that's it i left it alone yeah. i didn't want to open it and find you know a you know there was a typo or there is this one thing that i want to do mm-hmm. i i i just let it be but it's because i was talking to you that i actually opened it and you know went through every page of it and relived it in that sense oh wonderful i'm glad it it's it's a beautiful book i absolutely loved reading it and like i said uh just like this first person whom you gave it gave it to read uh like the art is even just on top of the fact that i'm enjoying this book it uh i Thank appreciated you. the design as well like i love that it is very clearly a travelogue because i can tell where you are and i can tell which part of your journey you're on uh i have read some accounts before uh, other travelogues in which i completely lose sight of where we are going and how far we've come but uh just the simple design decision to include a route map has been very helpful for readers like me at least i feel i'm a certain type of reader who needs that kind of visual information to back up some of the knowledge that i'm processing while reading so i've always found that all books are helped with a little bit of illustration and some complex information should always be visually illustrated rather than put down in words so uh, maybe another small argument for why why writers should draw and why uh, <laughs> artists should write a little bit uh what 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 now like now you have uh, processed one epic trip with this uh work before it with this work after it um how do, how does this change you now going into you uh, go, like you just came from tunisia so how, how has it changed you as a traveler how has it changed you as an urban sketcher during your travels for good or for bad um i am now forcing myself to think of each sketchbook right so especially after uh after this book uh i'm treating each one of my sketchbooks as something that have a life of its own you know something that has a beginning a middle and an end um you know i i've always approached my sketchbooks seriously in the sense uh it is not just you know you know i'm not just crawling into them but there is a little bit of a plan that goes into it okay. um well you know lately i have seen myself uh wanting to bring out a certain aspect of my sketching in each of these strips for example for my next sketchbook mm-hmm. i have decided i want dialogue bubbles which actually come from what i have seen you do in your sketches <laughs> right. that that i actually want to be able to sketch it in such a way that i have two people and i say this person said this this right which is an you know interesting aspect of you know being able to capture sound right you know right uh, sketching does not capture sound in that sense yeah. right yeah uh for my tunisia trip for example um uh, 
when I traveled, I had created for myself these templates. Right. Right. Yeah. Like like comic panels almost. Like comic panels, but then I had created them before I left. Yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. In the entire book, I had gone ahead and created these random panels. Right. And what that did was when I finally found myself at a place, right, I was forced to think of how I'm going to tell the story given these panels. There are some places yeah. where, you know, I suddenly have this, you know, double spread. Uh, what do I sketch given where I am, right? You know, uh, etc. Right. So it just, you know, I think, again, this is a way to force a constraint on yeah. yourself, right? To to drive yourself out of your comfort zone right. uh, to, to sketch in a particular way. Yeah, yeah. I really like, I really like that idea. I have, uh, I tried it similarly for a few pages in my sketchbook also. I started sketching Actually, I started urban sketching because I was already drawing comics and I wanted to draw better comics. My comics were just stick figures and I wanted to learn to draw them with recognizable people in recognizable settings. Uh, I started urban sketching thinking it's going to lead to richer comic art, but I started just drawing instead and I didn't go to the comics. So uh, bringing thought uh, thought bubbles and word bubbles into the, into this play is actually me bringing back my comic roots to the art I'm making. And uh, I find it very interesting that you're uh, setting up these templates for your scenes because, uh, so I take, for all of my travels, I have a sketchbook that I start and I try to finish on that journey, provided it's not a two-day trip or something. Right. I want to be able to finish a sketchbook in that time. And I think of every sketchbook I buy because once I finish one sketchbook, I do not buy the same one again, at least not immediately. I always change the size the brand, the paper quality, and the the format of my sketchbooks because uh, I find that as urban sketchers, we are not simply drawing the world we see, but we're also fitting it to the frame of our sketchbooks. So sometimes when we have portrait sketchbooks, we are seeing in terms of a tall scene. And then sketchbooks which are wide, we see the wide panorama, we see the wide views. So I love this challenge that you've set yourself that a sketchbook with predefined panel sizes. So you open to a page and now you have to adhere to that size. And what it does is it adds a constraint. It makes you see what you are seeing in a new light. Like you might have found a really nice spot to draw a really nice thing. But unfortunately, that thing is not going in because it is too tall for a for a landscape orientation panel. Right. So the constraints of urban sketching and the constraints of personality. So someone like me, or as I see someone like you who would prefer to not have to, uh, not have a hundred people looking down at your sketchbook and trying to speak to you and poke at you. Uh, you want to be a little aloof if you can. Uh, it allows you, or it, it pushes you towards solutions that you would not have otherwise determined as the quote unquote best solutions. Because those best ideas, unencumbered by any constraints, are exactly what has occurred to every photographer and all of the less, uh, more extroverted, less uh, self-conscious artists out there who don't mind spreading out their palette in the middle of a scene and making that painting. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to, I think what, what you're underlying there, uh, underlining there is you have to find a way to stay present even in that situation, right? Where, you know, that that, that composition you had in mind before you 
came to that situation, you wanted to sit in a certain place and you don't find that place. And there are two ways you can handle that situation, right? You know, there are people who would get frustrated and walk away and they have, they have lost something that they have no idea, right? The other person circumambulated uh, four times and saw parts of things that nobody has really seen in the last hundred years because nobody goes there and found this unique angle, right? And that that itself opened him to a part of himself that probably he was not aware of. And right. and it's amazing. The moment you stay present in that situation, uh, things things open. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other thing I firmly believe is that uh, when you're traveling, nothing is going wrong. Right? I always keep telling myself that, you know, hey, you know, you're traveling, you're on vacation, nothing is going wrong. Everything that happens, whether it's a flight delay or, you know, you're not getting your hot, or, you know, there's too much salt in your food, like everything is part of this package and you have to, you have to experience it, right? And I yeah. think uh, I've extended that to my life in general. Enjoy every yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one uh, A quote from my favorite author, my favorite author of all time is Kurt Vonnegut. And he said, that, uh, it's a quote from, I believe, Cat's Cradle. He says, uh, unexpected travel suggestions are dancing lessons from God. And I, I love that quote because I am the kind of person who needs to take such suggestions and needs to take this impetus. Now, I, I would tend to be the kind of person who doesn't deviate from their plan, who has a plan. But being an urban sketcher has opened me to the idea that it is best to not have a plan. And <laughs> I now give in to my laziness and allow myself to not make plans with the idea that the best plans will just happen. And uh, I feel like there's an aspect of even, uh, like it's it's a lesson we can take even if we are not artists, even if we are not sketchers, but simply from reading the accounts of people before us who were not locked in this same uh, destination-based travel that we are in. We want to get to point B. We don't care about the distance between point A and point B. There's so many times now, and it's partially because of the hassles of international travel, how cumbersome it is to travel through airports and how many uh, hoops you have to jump through to get on a plane and finally move. Uh, I, I felt, I've shared the sentiment that I wish I could just be there already. And it's 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 a valid uh, complaint, but there is so much lost in this process, in this idea that I just want to be there because it's so easy to jump from that to I just want to be in front of the Sphinx. I just want to take that photo and then I don't want to experience the heat and the discomfort and the hawkers and the people who will try to give me a tour forcefully. I just want to get out of there and then I want to go to uh, this other beautiful place and I want to just get a photo there and then I want to just come back to my home immediately. There is this fear of immersing ourselves in a place. And the lesson that I get from your book, the lesson, especially from your experience, because you are trying to emulate the experience of this person who is doing, I mean, they are trying to do the fastest trip they can do in 1839. It just happens to be a multi-month long trip. And now uh, we are going backwards in time in order to emulate it. But in their trying to do the fastest thing they can do, we have a call to slow down from our end in twenty in 2022 that uh, maybe we should consider not having a map to of the shortest route between two places. Maybe we should consider stopping when something looks interesting. 
so this is something i've started doing of late like without uh without feeling too self conscious about people around me that if i feel like something needs to be drawn then i have to i have to push a little bit against first against myself then uh, the people around me that hey maybe i need a few minutes here i have to learn to chase those instincts and i have to learn that the straight line path is not the best path uh that's my big lesson from your book from cairo to beirut vision that is so true the 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 shortest route between two places is often not the most interesting route it's just the most optimized route right and optimization is never for visual pleasure optimization is to save you know is for economies of scale right so in that sense the moment you take even a slight deviation from that right you know suddenly uh it becomes a more memorable more treasurable uh, moment there itself so you know, absolutely well said i love the way you put it well thank you so much sunil for giving me so much of your time this was it's so it's so lovely to speak to you because i have absolutely loved reading your book and i can't thank wait you to so share much. it with other people also i'm going to put the link for so that people can buy the book themselves and i really look forward to learning more about more of your travel experiences like i look forward to being a regular reader of your work and uh i have uh, yeah it's it's been it's been so good for me to to see that even this is possible because i have admired artists before and i have thought about what it would be like if i so when i was looking at the art of james atkinson in afghanistan i was thinking what i would do if i was there and your book shows me not only what i would do that might be the same as what they did but also shows me the circumstances in which i might draw something different from them the circumstances in which i might see something different from them in which my perception and my perceptiveness in that situation can also have its own value absolutely nishant absolutely it has been such a pleasure talking to you uh, and it has been such a pleasure to follow your art journey uh, you you know your as eloquent on this podcast as your sketches are uh, and it's just amazing to be alongside you uh, in these moments so thank you so much for uh, giving me the opportunity and uh, I look forward to you know every one of these things I think of as something that becomes a relationship and I look forward to sketching with you uh, sometime soon absolutely yes. Thank you for listening for the best ideas and insights from today's episode tap the link in the episode description to my Substack Every week I share my latest work and the best ideas from this journey to be an independent artist, writer and podcaster. To support this show, tap the link to become an insider or simply buy me a coffee. It is just that easy to keep this podcast going. I am grateful for your time and attention and I hope to see you again in the next episode. Many thanks and best wishes for this holiday season.